Hello, Appendix N Book Club listeners. This is Oliver Brackenbury, editor of a brand new publication, New Edge Sword and Sorcery Magazine. From an in-depth essay on C.L. Moore by Cora Bueller, to a review of Kirk A. Johnson's latest book, to an original story by SNS veteran David C. Smith, to a story by emerging author T.K. Rex, New Edge Sword and Sorcery covers the genre's past, present, and exciting future. Made with love for the classics and an inclusive, boundary-pushing approach to storytelling, there is something for everybody. Check it out at NewEdgeSwordAndSorcery.com. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club podcast. With me, as always, is that bore of the underworld, Jeff Goad, and not B-O-R-E, B-O-A-R. <laughs> oh, no, I'm definitely the B-O-R-E of the underworld. <laughs> underworld. I think you've got that backwards. Okay. <laughs> own it. Live it and own it. <laughs> oh, there you go. And this week, we're very honored to have with us as our special guest, Jim Hall of Brooklet Games. Uh, illustrator, designer, uh, extraordinaire. Uh, you've got a couple of very interesting projects on your own right, and you're also a contributor to the uh, Barkeep on the Borderlands, I believe, right? That's correct. Yeah, I'm doing some maps for Barkeep. Um, those will turn out pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, the stuff um, is gorgeous. This is a very beautiful design sense. Uh, I'm not re- quite sure. Can I say it's a little bit sort of open line influence, sort of Euro, some of Euro comics and some in there as one of the influences, among other things? Uh, there, There is a little bit of that in my yeah. past. I, I read, um, uh, I mean, you know, here, here we're going to be talking about uh, uh, Neverwhere. It's a Neil Gaiman book. So, you know, read Sandman back in the day and um, Watchmen and a bunch of those sort of classics as well as some... Uh, newer stuff like paper girls is, is a really cool one mm-hmm. um but um and a little bit of manga too back in the day but um uh, I, I really like a lot of uh, i don't know fantasy uh shows fantasy books a lot of sci-fi as well so that's mm-hmm. kind of where i'm where my inspiration is pulled from right. was there any particular uh thing that you remember as a seminal work that like really ignited your interest in sci-fi and fantasy or i mean probably going back to uh the roots would be oh uh, probably like narnia and redwall and that sort of uh you know this is elementary school middle school when i really started getting into um uh, the fantasy genre i read lord of the rings in middle school which um, it's a pretty dense book for a middle schooler, mm-hmm. but, um, mm-hmm. uh, but then kind of at the same time or around the same time got into Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and, um, I kind of started going down that, that sci-fi, uh, thread of things with some of the, the classic sci-fi books too. So. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what was your sort of uh, history in gaming? Was this like uh, at the same time or a little later that you got into gaming? Yeah, I, I got into role-playing gaming much later. Uh, the first time I played was, uh, I was thinking about this, like maybe 10 or 12 years ago, um, back in, in college. Um, I played with a group of classmates. And I think that was uh, 3.5. And, uh, but now that I think about it, and that might have been second edition. I'm not. I didn't know anything about editions at mm. that time, so I, I couldn't really uh, tell you. But then I didn't pick it up for 
um, a really long time until uh, about six years ago, I went to a, a game store and they had like a bulletin board to sign up for like pickup games. And I put my name there and like a year later, I get a call from a random number or a text or something and and I got swept up into the hobby. So Swept up into this mythic underworld that was... A- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and... Um, but, you know, I, I also kind of trace the, the gaming interests back across different formats, too. So, um, like, when I was young, I got really into uh, Mist and Riven, uh, these, these old... Um, uh, video games, computer games, and they made me think about world building much deeper than I ever have. And I think deeper probably than a lot of people do. Um, and so that that's kind of where I trace back my, my world building roots to. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of your work uh, combines both design and illustration. Was your um, illustration always sort of trending towards fantastic or do you do, is that just part of like a you know a compartmentalized part of your work what's what's this what's the story with that i did like art school uh, art, art classes in high school and all throughout all my education and um i actually went to an art school but i studied like design you know not art mm-hmm. um but in terms of the art that i do for myself or pleasure it, it usually does uh tend towards the fantastic um or at the very least, like um, worlds unlike what we live in today. So, I mean, there's, uh, I do find it very fascinating though when there's a crossover between the worlds of um, the fantastic and like the mundane, um, which you, I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself well, here. I mean, you're laying the groundwork for the, the, yeah. the set, for, for sure. For um, sure. <laughs> but, you know, I mentioned that uh, that comic book series, Paper Girls, it's the same sort of thing where, the the kind of starts off in a mundane real world such scenario and then it kind of goes off the rails i love that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um that being said i I digress i do tend to go into the fantastic i love swords and monsters and and adventure and um lately i've been drawing um bug adventurers beetle adventurers who are um uh, you know, tiny little adventurers in, in grass and moss and fungus and that right. sort of stuff. So. I noticed you have these uh, rideable, as paper minis, uh, rideable snail minis yeah. on, on itchy.io itchy, itchy. Yeah. and other little... I really do got to update that website because there's a lot of material that's that's not on there. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like low-key working on a, a role-playing game um, where you play as, as a beetle knight. Oh, there you go. Um, traveling around solving mysteries and sort of thing is that use its own bespoke system or building off something else like uh, apocalypse world or classic D &D or what would your approach to that i mean i'm a big fan of the uh well uh, karen really uh, was uh has been a huge influence i i write a lot of my adventures for karen Mm -hmm. and so that sort of uh, mark of the odd style uh game is um what i tend to go for um and so I'm, I'm at a little bit of an impasse right now, though, because I'm kind of deciding whether or not to create a whole different um, system or just, like, modify that base kind of mark of the odds system. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I, I haven't decided yet. Mm-hmm. We we could talk game mechanics if you wanted, but oh, sure, we'll do that on the, maybe on the back half there. Yeah. Um, so, what are uh, through your various uh, strains of influence? What are things that you a work or two that you might cite as being particularly valuable for gamers? Whether it's uh, you know books, specifically books, but it could be other media too that that you think would be really valuable for gamers to look at. Um, yeah, I mean, I already mentioned Hitchhikers. Um, the thing about it is the the tone, uh, I think, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The tone is what I think winds up coming out a lot at the table. Uh, just a little goofy, kind of sardonic, and just um, just kind of fun. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, what else would be uh, particularly good. I mean, I just read uh, Ursula Le Guin's uh, A Wizard from Earthsea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just like got ideas exploding for magic systems uh, that you know cranked out a magic system based off of uh, what they describe in that book, and you know it's fantastic. Oh, uh, Joe Abercrombie, uh, the blade itself, mm, some great yeah. adventure. Um, I mentioned uh, uh, sci-fi uh, stuff. There's um, I'm not going to be able to remember the name now. There's a there's a book where um, a um, a planet is seeded, it's terraformed, and um, uh, they provide they put a virus on there that helps creatures evolve very quick. And so all of a sudden, there's these super hyper intelligent spiders that exist. And they live out these adventures over the gen- their generations. And I go. don't know. Okay. If any listeners, if you know what that book is, when you listen to this episode, do let us know. It sounds amazing. Um, so, I mean, I noticed on the, uh, your work seems to, at least your published work so far, seems to tend a little bit more towards sort of the uh, fantastic sort of exploration of sort of unusual environments and a little bit less on the sort of, uh, sort of, smash and grab of uh you know traditional D D, if, if you will um at least yeah in, yeah. yeah um I, I i like that style a lot it's it's just a different style of play you know mm-hmm. I, I like the crunchy combat that sort of thing as well but the i don't know you, you hear people say it where some of the best sessions have zero combat um and even uh, even some that are just completely off the you know uh, improv right in the moment so it can be a lot of fun to just have those sorts of experiences and you don't necessarily need combat i mean we we haven't uh, fulfilled lives without combat i right. mean most of us anyway i hope, <laughs> I hope. exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh, well i mean speaking of unusual environments uh this week we are reading uh neil gaiman's neverwhere um what edition are you, the book are you working with today um, well, I actually uh, listened to the audiobook uh, on Audible that was narrated by uh, Neil himself. Okay. I think that's his handle on Twitter. But um, yeah, and it it was quite well. It was done quite well. He narrates it well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I also listened to the Neil Gaiman narrated Audible audiobook. And then I also read um, this edition of the paper book, uh, paperback which is the William Morrow Harper Collins paperback. That's got the Henry C. Nye watercolor painting of a staircase on here, which is, you know, it's lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not 
super exciting cover, but it's pretty. I'm working from the same ebook of that. Um, So, and that was a a couple of people pointed out in our book club that there's been multiple editions. And this was specifically sort of a hybrid edition because it was originally he wrote that as an adaptation of the miniseries that they had created in the late 90s. And um, the first American edition, there was a British edition and the first American edition, they made him take out a lot of the super hyper British references because they thought American audiences wouldn't get it. Um, and there was other scenes that he, uh, you know, had in his back pocket that didn't make it in. And this is sort of a hybrid edition, putting back in the Britishisms, but some of the best of the American, the stuff that he did for the American edition. And then my paperback also has this like map of the London underground tube system with also information about the different stations and kind of when they came around. And it included two bonus stories, how the Marquis got his coat back and an altogether different prologue 400 years earlier. Um, I didn't read either of those. Um, I did I did notice, though, that the How the Marquis Got His Coat Back was included in the audiobook. I didn't listen to that. I was going to if I had time. I didn't have time. Uh, Jim, did you end up listening to that? I did. Yeah, it was a little uh, sort of a vignette um, and a similar story. And the Marquis uh, de Carabas was, was, you know, a fantastic character in the book. And so it, I was happy to uh, get a little bit more of him. Now, have either of you watched the miniseries? No, I didn't know there was a miniseries, yeah. and, I did, and I definitely didn't know it predated the the novel mm-hmm. until our patron right. book club earlier today. Yeah, I have no memory of the miniseries, but I did watch it when I was working at a, a very Anglophile video store back in the late 90s. Um, it is available for U.S. audiences, uh, both uh, paid on Amazon, and it is uh, free with ads on Pluto, the Pluto app. So uh, if you're very interested, uh, you can go back and look at that. I have not had a chance to rewatch it yet, though. Yeah, I had no idea until the end where they're like, "This was based off of a off of a miniseries based off of a short story that he never finished, or something like that." And <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Um, anyway, yes. So, uh, Jeff, I think I really like your Hygaxian word this week. So, oh, perfect. Yeah. Then I'll go ahead and pull that up. So, the great thing about our Hygaxian word of the day this for this episode is it was actually uh, recommended to us by a character within the book. Um, page 226 of my edition, it says, um, Circumlocution, said Mr. Croup to Mr. Vandemar. It is a way of speaking around something, a digression, a verbosity. So, the word is circumlocution, and he even tells us what it means. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, the way that that character talks is just fantastic. It's so precise like that, and that's just hmm. yeah, Mr. Group. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Group. So, so uh, all right. So we're talking about the book now. What is? What did you think, generally speaking, uh, Jim? Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, the The world uh, was was quite rich, and um, you. It seemed like there was sort of mystery around every turn in every place that you'd go within this, uh, the underground, there's just something wild, uh, going on. And, um, it was, it was kind of unpredictable in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, though I did feel like everywhere that you'd go, uh, all the characters would be like, ah, yes, this is the, uh, everyone knows that, uh, the night market is, you know, uh, something like that. And so, um, at that that kind of took me out of it sometimes, but uh, for the most part, it was just that's that's what it, what drew me in is this world um, where you feel like it's big, 
mm-hmm. feels big. Mm-hmm. Feels rich. Mm-hmm. And were there any particular scenes, characters, uh, factions within the book that were like, oh, that that's just an amazing. I'm I'm just having such a you know great moment reading this particular bit. You know, the bits about the portions of London above that kind of got trapped in some sort of time loop uh, inside of London below. And they, they just were kind of fulfilling some action over and over and over again through mm-hmm. all eternity. Right, right. The, um, the, the fogs and the, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's like a, a, a battlefield where they're just um, battling all throughout all eternity or something like that. And um, it's just, it's interesting and a little terrifying, but it also uh, describes where some of this richness comes from, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I also mentioned uh, a Marquis de Carabas, a very fun character who um, I did not trust. Um, and yes, and I think that's by design, yeah. right? Yeah, and that's and that's like his whole thing too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so overall, I really enjoyed it. There's a lot about it that I liked. Uh, there are also a bunch of little things here and there that kind of bugged me about it, but overall, I think that it's a great story. There's a lot of moments of inspiration in there our main character richard um mayhew mayhew yeah i feel like he was you know a little bland not a whole lot going on with him um and there's a lot of wizard of oz um parallels in this story and he felt very dorothy in that way where like dorothy's also not a particularly interesting character and like when you watch the wizard of oz or you read the stories you're like why does she want to go back to this like boring ass farm with her like aunt with her auntie and uncle like that just sounds like the most depressing place on the planet but she really wants to go back there so you're like all right i i i guess i hope she gets back then but like so we we had a little bit of that but then i guess we also neil gaiman kind of did the 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 response to that too though where it's also like yeah but when dorothy gets back to the farm she's probably really gonna miss Mm odds so we got to have a little bit of that with richard wanting to go Mm -hmm. back I don't know. Um, I think the stuff with um, I thought Jessica was a really fun character. Mm-hmm. I think Neil Gaiman did a great job of making her really entertainingly unlikable. Um, I think especially the moment where we get some insight into her head where, she, where she's thinking about her assistant mm-hmm. and how she's really annoyed because she's pretty sure her assistant only got the job because he's openly gay and even more openly black. But then she's also annoyed because he is also the best assistant she's ever had. <laughs> so like it bothers her that like this kind of like conflicts with her theory. Yeah. Uh, and I just thought that was a really great way of just kind of showing it's just like how gross this person is on the inside. <laughs> And there was also this one moment that I thought was really amazing that Adam and our patron book club um, told, le- expressed might be a midnight, um, um, a, no, not midnight cowboy. Um, uh, easy, easy rider. E- reference. Was it easy, easy rider? rider reference? Might be an easy rider reference, yeah. where Richard Mayhew's walking through the floating market and he looks at his watch and the watch face isn't working. So he takes the watch off and throws it into the garbage. I loved that moment because it really felt like that was the moment that Richard Mayhew was like, fuck it. I'm here. I can let go of the world above. I am in the, I'm in this world now. And, um, Adam in our patron book club pointed out that that's actually a, um, a kind of an iconic moment in easy rider, uh, which is not something I remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's probably a, reference to that because i know that neil gaiman is a big movie buff and they really build up to that to uh 
over the course, like the first part portion of the book where at first, uh, Richard is really shocked of everything, uh, and like what? And then slowly he becomes less shocked as he sees these crazy things. Yeah. I, I enjoyed this book, um, quite a bit, but I think it also is, a a work that sort of straddles or points out both Gaiman's strengths and his flaws. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think one of his flaws is that, um, he, he always gets right. He, well, not always, he can often get right up to the edge of Twee. Right. Yeah. So, so door, unfortunately to me, I mean, she's the exciting, but she ends up being kind of a cipher almost as much as Richard is. And, and she kind of fulfills, you know, that, um, you know, this term, which is a little bit now discredited, but, you know, the man- manic pixie dream girl, she's the one who's, like, gives him the call to adventure. He's just this bland, you know, cishet dude who, who supposedly rises to the call of adventure. But we don't actually get much of him also, at least in the narration of this book, really rising to that level of adventure. He's in the world, but he never feels like he never becomes... Like, oh, I guess I'm a hero, right? You know, mm. he's like he's told he's a hero. And even his great moment where he like slays the beast, yeah. like really Hunter did almost all of that work. He just kind of stepped in at the last moment and was literally holding the spear while like she did the work to basically get the boar onto the spear. Right, right. And this is like his great moment of like heroism. But he's very successful at building these sort of like mythical uh, characters and factions that you know that there's more to them, that there's connected yeah. to the sense of history. Um and I suspect some of the weaknesses that I'm seeing in this, I haven't read any of Gaiman's other novels. I'm a huge fan of his comic book work, um, but I haven't read any of his other novels. I suspect that some of the, what are perceived weaknesses in this book are two things. A, it's relatively early on in his novelistic work, but B, also, also I think some of the things are lost in translation from the other medium. Um, so people talked about maybe the pacing felt a little bit like, oh, it's then it's here and then it's here, it's then it's here. But in television, it works more successfully because you have these ad breaks and what have you. So people are, okay, you come back from the ad break, you're, you're here now. Um, so you don't have to show all the little bits. So it doesn't feel as choppy and episodic uh, when you're watching it in television. Also, at certain times, um, I, think, again, I think again, it was Adam or maybe it was uh, Robert was pointing out that the dialogue was very sort of 90s, sort of self-referential. You know, Joss Whedon tends to do that as well. Um, yeah. And that was a very popular thing at the time. And again, I think again, in a real-time medium like television, you're on to the next line. So you don't have time to linger over it and say, oh, yeah, that line was a little bit, uh, you know, whatever. It didn't land right or something like that. Uh, I think it's that very 90s kind of scream mentality yeah. where, like, we're all trying really hard to be meta and self-aware. Yeah. yeah. But I, I really, uh, again, I like all the the imagery, the factions, um, you know, anybody other than the protagonist is I mean, Marquita Carabas, you know, he's a terrific character. And in the <laughs> miniseries, he's played by Patterson Joseph, who's an, uh, an incredible that guy actor. You know, you're like, oh, who's that guy? That guy, P- you know, Patterson Joseph. <laughs> um, and then I forgot that Peter Capaldi actually played the Angel Islington in the, in the original miniseries, too. So uh, who was the, what, 12th Doctor, 11th Doctor? I can't remember which Doctor, but... Um, not a Doctor Who Not guy. Either. I don't know. Um, the uh, the angel was was kind of fun. I I trusted the angel at mm-hmm. first, I, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I I got spun around there. They they tricked me. Right, right. I was really confused with the angel, and um, but but it's my fault. But the when we first meet the homeless guy, um, Iliaster, who takes um, Richard to the underworld. 
they make a big deal that his name is Iliaster, and Richard's like, oh, what a weird name. So later, when we find out that Dor needs to seek out Islington, I got confused and mm-hmm. I was thinking Iliaster. Mm-hmm. So I kept waiting for us to figure out like how this guy who led Richard into the underworld was also this angel. And then that never happened. So when it was over, I like went back and I was like, oh, it was a different name. You, you did mention too how uh, uh, you know, Neil Gaiman has Richard kind of come back around and discover that, you know, he does want to live uh, in London underground, you know? Yeah. Um, and when I was like at that point, portion of the book i was telling my wife about it and just saying all right well i'm you know the book's almost it's pretty much done we just have to let the protagonist know that he doesn't want his boring life you know that's (laughs) 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 but maybe it could just be that um this is for maybe a little younger audience and i've just seen these things before and so i'm just jaded that Mm -hmm. could be yeah, like I actually think it would have been more effective if we if Neil Gaiman had stuck to his guns with Richard really wanting to live in the in the London above and instead what he does is he goes to the London above and goes back to the world he had but uh, to the life he had but is now like no, I want to make my life more exciting and meaningful and I'm going to find a way mm-hmm. to do that in this world that feels safe and I I like the safer feeling world but I want to do this in a way where I can find meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. Because like it almost then gives this like message that there's no way to find meaning and purpose in london above mm-hmm. yeah right that's interesting right and this was the 90s i think this is um who was the uh tony blair this is sort of the blair tony blair era in the uk so it's everything's okay. kind of very polished and a little bit yuppie and and um, we're sort of and you know we're here with the clinton era so it's we're post-history right because it's pre pre pre-war on terror post-cold war right so mm-hmm. it just seems like everything is just going to continue there will be no more conflicts the world's perfect uh, but perfectly boring. Yeah. <laughs> right. But also speaking of doors, like the the manic pixie dream girl, is that yeah. you said? Yeah. Yeah. Also with, um, with Hunter, I thought at first when we were introduced to Hunter and she's this like gorgeous, like caramel skin, badass warrior woman. I'm like, okay, this is cool. She's a cool character. But then it started bugging me how lazy he was being in describing her because suddenly everything was caramel. Not only her skin was caramel, her voice was caramel. Mm -hmm. He just kept using caramel to describe everything she does. And I'm like, come on, Neil. Like, I I understand. Like, I I thought it was awesome that you included this, like, woman of color who's also the most beautiful woman Richard has ever seen, who's this, like, badass warrior chick. But now you're hyper fixating on the word caramel to the point where, like, it's now starting to feel like this is very much like a a token character. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I can see that. I, I didn't notice that. <laughs> I wonder if that's the nature also of this cobbled together version of this text, which is literally three different versions of this novel, right? And obviously he did a screenplay even before that, mm. uh, which means that maybe he's not as careful sort of looking back and reviewing and, 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 and you know, looking at it as a, as a cohesive work. Um, I could be wrong about that. Um, yeah, that's fair. But Jim, I would love to share some, um, some opinions that the patron book club had and kind of see what your thoughts on this are. Okay. It was a very divisive book in our patron book club. Oh. Some of them really enjoyed it. Some of them really didn't. And kind of the big point of complaint was that a lot of people didn't like the kind of tonal line it was walking, where it's kind of jokey, jokey, but also being serious. It's not Hitchhiker's Guide enough, or it's not a horror kind of modern fantasy story enough. It's doing a little bit too much of 
trying to walk the line between the two. Mm. And a lot of people in our group didn't find that that was done successfully, but some did. What is your thoughts on the kind of the line it's walking between the jokiness of it, but also that it's, you know, also kind of a serious story too. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, I, I can see where that's coming from. And I, you know, I've noticed this with uh, Neil Gaiman. I mean, you know, he's written alongside Terry Pratchett. Uh, and so he definitely comes from that pedigree of, of tongue-in-cheek sort of jokes. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think that there's anything wrong with having that sort of tone. But when, um, when it, it creates sort of a discordance that's, that maybe is unintentional, um, it, it could be it could take someone out of it. I mean, anything that kind of yeah. takes you out of, out of the moment and makes you think, Oh, I'm reading a book is just like that, that it's counterproductive and in, in the art, mm-hmm. but you could per- perhaps argue that the uh, discordance is uh, somehow a literary manifestation of Richard uh, Richard's like uh, discordance with this world. Um, but, uh, you know, now I'm just, um, doing the, the, the literature class, the, <laughs> you know, thing where maybe I'm taking that too deep, but honestly, uh, it, it was fine. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, it didn't bug me too much, but I can definitely see that. And, and that has bugged me in other, uh, gaming mm-hmm. work. Gaming is sort of like a people pleaser. I mean, it's hard not to be. You're, you're you're creative, and you put your work out there, and you want people to enjoy it, right? But he's a people pleaser in a way that, for example, his one of his great influences, Alan Moore, is not, right? Alan Moore is just going to go whatever the implication of the story is to its bitter end. Um, and then Gaiman, I think, because Gaiman actually has a legit chops as a horror. I mean, there's truly horrific scenes in there. He has, you know, Sandman when it was originally pitched was pitched as a horror comic, um, and, and promoted as a horror comic, and then until it became more overtly fantasy. Uh, but gaming kind of draws back, I think, sort of, he gets right up to the brink, but he draws back in a way that Alan Moore doesn't, right? Um, he's not like a panderer the way that, say, Mark Millar can be, where Mark Millar is just like, oh, I'm going to gross out or do something, you know, because, you know, I'm that, you know, you know, borderline splatterpunk guy in, ca- in certain cases that I want to do. Or Garth Ennis can be sometimes uh, really just go out there. Uh, so gaming's a little bit more... Um, sensitive and he sort of kind of gets right up to that line but he kind of pulls back but at that time it can then seem kind of just like oh a little bit sort of middle of the road whereby then you are not really addressing any of the needs of the audience by trying to address all of them right and so mm-hmm. that's sometimes what i feel i get with some of gaming's work and it's where i feel like gaming is more successful generally when he has a collaborator of some sort like a great artist like dave mccain or any of the great artists he had when Sandman and stuff like that. And, and presumably when the miniseries, because that's, again, a, a collaborative medium television. Um, there are other voices being brought and, and sort of pulling him, you know, tempering him. And But by himself, he's a little bit more middle of the road, is my feeling. And so that maybe then you feel like, oh, maybe there was certain potential that was not exploited in the story. I mean, he, he does have the potential to, to, you know, pick a side, if you will. Yeah. Like American Gods is yeah. way more serious um yes and so but i don't know it's the character richard mayhew is just kind of a goofball mm-hmm. you know he's he doesn't take himself very he does i mean that's like his character he doesn't take himself seriously mm-hmm. so 
But even American Gods, when it's being, even though it is a much more serious work, and it's all I've read of Neil Gaiman is I read a bunch of Sandman comics as a teenager, and then I read American Gods maybe 15 years ago. And I remember at the time feeling like the prose style was really smug. Like, Mm -hmm. I just, like, I could just, I felt like, like Neil Gaiman was just, like, I could feel like he just thought he was so clever. And that might be what I was projecting onto the text. I don't know. And it would be interesting to go and reread that. Um, I wasn't getting that part here. But even so, like, I do feel like even in American Gods, there's this kind of, like, um, very self-aware, tongue-in-cheek kind of noir style to the way that he's doing his prose there, that um, it still seems very um, authorial. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman's voice always seems very present, at least in the two novels of his I've read so far. It's It seems like it's hard for him to kind of divorce his own voice from these stories, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it 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 then makes it so that you really have to kind of like that voice to also like right. the Right, it can be potentially distancing, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, again, this uh, ton of marvelous imagery and, and, and characterization and, con- and concept concepts in here. So I, I think it's still a rewarding book. It's just not. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It's just yeah. a lot of really fun, really cool, interesting stuff happening yeah. here. Also, I think it's interesting that we have so many loose ends as well. And um, Hoy, I think were you, were you the one who was mentioning in the patron book club that he was that he is either in the process of or yeah, is considering he had mentioned that he was sequel? writing another book in the London uh, uh, about the London below. Um, I think it's called the Seven Sisters. Uh, but he mentioned that about okay. five years ago, and he said he'd written three chapters. But I don't know how high of a priority it is in sort of mm-hmm. his list of work. Um, so I, I okay. don't know if it's just. Um, being held for the right publishing slot or if he's got a lot more work to do. But I think there's obviously a lot more to explore in this, uh, yeah. both even in this current time frame and going back into the past. You know. And the three loose ends that I thought were really um, glaring to me, at least, were with when Anastasia, when, um, Anastasia mm-hmm. goes missing, um, there are multiple references to the fact that like she can come back. There, there are people who do come back from this um, so I kept expecting because they were saying that, that we were going to have anesthesia again and we never right. did. So that felt like a, um, a loose end. Then there was the the big moment where Hunter refused to go above ground mm-hmm. and would not explain herself. Mm-hmm. And unless I missed something, I don't think we ever no, got we an explanation yeah. about why she would not no. go above or why she either would not or could right. not go above ground. And then the third obvious one is that door discovers that potentially her sister is alive and being kept somewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I may, maybe that's coming from uh, like, uh, this is a TV show. We'll see how successful it is. And maybe we can do another season. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> exactly. And uh, <laughs> right. I mean, it could be that sort of thing. That and, you know, the serialized medium of comics. So both of those like, okay, I, I can have another story somewhere and I can slip. Yep. Yeah. Um, but you could also, you know, say, Hey, this just makes the world feel deeper or something along those lines. But I totally agree. Like the, they alluded to uh, Anastasia, Anastasia uh, multiple times. And Mm -hmm. um, it's like, what's the purpose of that uh, in the book? Other than like making Richard, maybe making Richard see that there's real consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are stakes. Um, Right. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel a natural sequel would be if you're involving Richard, would be him on a quest to see if he can find or rescue Anastasia. Right? That would be a a, a natural follow up. Oh, 
I would imagine it would be him helping Dor find her sister, and in the process Black of that, anesthesia. discovering it somehow wrapped up in whatever kind of mystery anesthesia was pulled into, and that she becomes a really pivotal pivotal part in the finding right, of this right. sister. Um, if you do end up reading the story of uh, how the Marquis uh, found his coat, uh, you know, which is, takes place shortly after the novel, um, it then talks about stuff about the Marquis is sort of a self and him it alludes to a little bit of his origin and he is uh, uh, self-invented but there's also people in his past too so it's interesting because it's both where this london underground is where people fall through the cracks but it's also where people reinvent themselves too right so i think that's interesting and that could be a lot of reference to i mean obviously people go to london Richard goes to London, but he reinvents himself. He creates himself in the most boring way possible, right? He comes from Scotland or whatever. <laughs> he creates the most boring possible version of himself. <laughs> right? yeah. um, that, that's interesting in the lens of, uh, of Gaiman's work as a whole because he he talks a lot about, um, I mean, you look at the, the kind of the big words that we talked about here, uh, American Gods and the Sandman, Um uh, and both of those, to me, are kind of founded on the American gods mythos of belief creates gods. And um, and so with that Marquis uh, de Carabas short story, belief made the Marquis de Carabas. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe the coat, but the coat gave him the belief right, to right. become Marquis de Carabas. Right, so. right. Mm. Get, get yeah, many pocketed coat. Right, confidence. And that's totally a great, like, D&D fifth edition item or something like that you know oh for sure (laughs) oh yeah and i can also see um american gods and everywhere existing in the same universe yeah 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 so moving this over to like a gaming side of the conversation i'm uh curious jim what came up for you in terms of while you're reading this like cool ideas that you thought that might be be worth stealing and reskinning in any kind of a gaming capacity i mean i mentioned it before but the world itself is is really fun and you could um, you could do a lot with it, um, yeah, because it's so fantastical, uh, yet also familiar. So that crossover between the familiar and the fantastic, um, where uh, game is just turning these things on their heads. Um, well, like uh, the the floating market is the perfect example where uh, you go places that exist in in London above but they are somehow outside of the normal uh, flow of things. That's, that's really fun. Mm-hmm. The other thing that really stood out to me is doors. Um, the and door magic. Yeah. Door magic. Um, I mean, obviously we have the knock spell, but using doors as a sort of um, transportation mechanic uh, and, and creating like some rules around that to have some, uh, sort of risk associated with it would be pretty cool. Um, yeah. And it also kind of hel- helps to see how maybe like a spell like knock could be a bridge to a spell like gate. And the idea of, uh, and one of the things that like, we, were, uh, we were kind of chatting about in the patron book club was that um, it might be interesting if like, if you're playing like an old school D and D game where those first few spells you roll up as your character advances, rather than getting new spells, you are negotiating with the DM ways to make the, your starting spells more interesting and more powerful so that you're building on the kind of magics you already have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I come from this 
uh, I'm, I'm interested in this, this, this uh, sort of approach to magic where it's way more, uh, kind of narrative based, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you pick two words and tell the, the, uh, the DM or the GM what you want to do with that spell. Yeah. It's not very maze rats. Yeah, it, yes, exactly. Um, uh, so put that kind of way of thinking into the context of this world where we know the doors exist in this sort of, and do these sorts of things. And it could be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this book, uh, both, um, I think it would be perfect for a game of modern fantasy, uh, shadow run or uh, mage, yeah. you know, but it is a quintessential D and D mythic underworld, right? You have factions, you have uh, multiple ways to get to any particular spot, whether through doors, powers, or these different routes that you go into a London above and you pop back down. Um, you have um the floating market i think is an amazing thing uh for mm-hmm. any sort of underdark game right because instead of then having your traditional D party retreat back to the surface world to resupply and re-equip right they get these moments of pause uh but knowing that it's not going to last and that there's danger there but it's also a place where you can get plot hooks and rumors and all these things like that um yeah. so um i think Tied that to is, the calendar Exactly. And uh, exactly. And, and it pops up at unusual times too. You're going here and like, Oh wait, there's that bridge. There's the, fl- but yeah, can we, you know, we want to go to the floating market, but there's that risk. Cause every time you cross that bridge to the floating market, right. Something could happen. Yeah. Um, yep. And I think this, the whole premise of this book where there is a whole other world that is both beneath and kind of um, coexisting with you in your city that you, we're not able to really even notice is I think a really cool concept that could be used really well. Like you mentioned in Shadowrun, I think also like in a Linkmar campaign, mm-hmm. I think in a World of Darkness campaign or a Call of Cthulhu campaign, these could all be really cool things for the characters to then kind of discover and then have access to this like completely different world that's um, coexisting. And even in like a World of Darkness world, it might be a way of also explaining how you can have these supernatural things that exist in a world where people don't believe in the supernatural mm-hmm. because now maybe maybe if this is kind of the way that it works, uh, maybe vampires, when they feed, people don't notice it and they come up with reasons for what actually happened in that moment to justify how this person just died. All right. You know, it, you right. could work all kinds of right. things the, like the that. The velvets are essentially vampires, or the lamias, right? Mm-hmm. And so people die of exposure, which is not unusual for someone who's homeless, right? And, you know, because they basically freeze, right? Um, and then, Jim, you mentioned um, sort of tying this to American gods. I love the idea that every city has its mythical underground monster. And that's what, you know, Hunter is looking for, like the tiger of, of, um, Calcutta? Uh, Calcutta and like the albino alligator of New York, right? <laughs> <Just flying laughs> yeah. All these creatures, right? Yeah, I mean, you could, uh, it, it, this could be the mythos of your of your world. Like, you know, yeah. whatever. And, and, and so a, a kind of a question I was thinking is, do you think it would fit well in like your existing sort of standard fantasy world campaigns or is it something that would have to be more standalone? I mean, I... I have my thoughts, but I think you could do either kind of depending on what you're looking for. Right. Right. I think it would be, uh, both in a modern game, but also even if you had a sort of a more vanilla game, this is a way to make the vanilla game start to get weird. Right. Mm-hmm. If you were playing sort of vanilla D and D right. And, yeah. and get, and, and, and that would be interesting for, especially for a DM. So you, or you have a group of players that have certain 
baseline expectations, especially, you know, D&D is, is its own mythology now in a way, right? Like, especially fifth edition and with the, the reach of stuff like critical role and stuff like that. So people have certain expectations. So mm-hmm. you start with that, but then you can sort of, and people come to you and say, hey, I want to play D&D and they have this picture in their mind of what D&D is, right? But you as a DM, it's like, okay, that's fine. But you have your own personal quirks and interests and that's your way to sort of weird it up fully yeah. over time, right? <laughs> right? And, and, yeah. so, and make it your, you know, your game that hopefully that they will also find interesting and compelling, you know? Yeah. yeah. What I also thought was cool was the, the heavy usage of the barter system mm-hmm. and how in the London, London Blow, money means nothing, mm-hmm. which then got me kind of thinking what it would be like to completely abandon currency. So I'm curious, Jim, can you imagine playing Cairn without currency? I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, you do it. Uh, the thing that, that kind of strikes me uh, there, the one exchange that stands out is uh, Richard traded, I can't remember what he was trading for, but a handkerchief. Yeah, he traded a handkerchief. And it, yeah. um, such, at least for information, uh, it's such a mundane object. And so. Why is a handkerchief valuable? Um, and when you start answering that question, it gets really interesting. You know, maybe it has his, uh, you know, snot on it, and therefore uh, it can be used in a spell for that can control him. Or um, maybe items from uh, London above don't make it into London below very frequently. Um, and there's sort of a residual energy of some sort tied to it. Uh, I think that could be really interesting. And then you flip it around. How can the players use that? So you can build entire mechanics off of that right. sort of concept. Right. And I think it would be very interesting, um, both in a traditional D&D game, where you actually already have a GP system, but then they go into this underworld and find out that the GP really is not worth as much as like a good rope or a torch or whatever uh, might be. Um, so like, oh, I've got a hundred, you know, we've run out of rope. I've got a hundred GP. I'm at the floating market. No, we don't care about that. You know, you got to <laughs> give us something interesting, but also to make like, you could leave like lots of random junk around. That's seemingly not a value, uh, you know, when people go and explore, but if your player has a little imagination, hmm, like, yeah, what about that handkerchief I find on the ground? Yeah. Oh, this is uh, a rust dented copper pot. Should I take that? You know, that might be worth something, right? Um, especially once they've first encountered a market like that. It also depends on how uh, strict you are with uh, encumbrance. And- <laughs> yes, because um, Karen is, is quite strict with it. Um, and so you can only hold, you know, so many items. Um, and so then it becomes a very clear Oh, I'm I'm holding on to this stuff because I'm going to trade. You right. know? Yeah. yeah, torch bearer the same way. Yeah, yeah. But I could also see house ruling it a little bit, where maybe something small like a handkerchief isn't occupying an item slot, and maybe you can like uh, maybe you can have a conversation with the GM where you're like, "Hey, actually, I also have this handkerchief on me that's like in the pocket of my jacket um, yeah. that I'd like to use." And I don't, I don't. Uh, does Karen have a luck system? I don't think it does. Uh, no, um, no. But uh, and I don't know what that is. So what what's a luck system? Well, like Dungeon Crawl Classics will have a luck score, so you. 
can. Um, so if 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 you want to propose something that may or may not work, that might just be luck based in Dungeon okay. Crawl class, you can just be like, okay, make a luck roll. Right. And if you succeed, then yeah, sure, you've got a handkerchief on. Right. Yeah, or sure. if you don't, it's like, you no, you don't have the thing you're looking for. Um, like yeah. a similar thing, but not identical, might be inspiration in fifth edition, right? So I have this thing and it provides me some, you know. I, um, and in fact, fifth edition and DCC are actually already kind of decoupled from the GP in old school D&D, right? I mean, the, the gold exists and it's a way to buy things, but you're not really gaining experience by finding treasure in fifth edition or DCC, really. So you could, it's already rife for implementing this interesting barter yeah. system. Uh, two things. One, with the, uh, oh, I have a handkerchief in my pocket. I'd probably just allow it. I wouldn't yeah, even yeah. do it. You know, I'd just be like, yeah, okay, sure. Right. But yeah. I have a AK-47 in my pocket. Uh, well, right, right. <laughs> right. Um, Which is why certain games like um, the gumshoe system have a preparedness uh, skill or role. So you can say, like, you don't have to list everything on your sheet. But you're like, oh, well, I, you could say exactly, like, I have AK-47 in my pocket, right? It's like, well, <laughs> you're an archaeologist. What's the likelihood that you would have an AK-47 in your pocket? You're a mercenary. You might have an AK-47, yeah. right? And so that's how many preparedness points you might have to spend in order to justify having this thing that you didn't previously have on the adventure, right? That's super interesting. Uh, yeah. But, th- but then the other comment was uh, uh, when you're playing a GP for XP style game, uh, barter system is a little trickier. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't yeah. work the same. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Right. Then you have to attach, uh, yeah, you almost have to toss it and you would attach that to a successful trades of some sort and, you know, what that trade gets you, yeah. right? Yeah, and it's tricky because even with the XP systems in general, especially for Dungeons and Dragons, it's like, am I going to try to prioritize murder or capitalism? What are the two things that are going to make my characters more powerful? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a strange uh, progression into uh, uh, power, really. Right. Um, yeah, but there, there's other approaches, right, to uh, to leveling up. I bet you two mm-hmm. would have some pretty interesting insights into other approaches. Oh, yeah, there's tons of different ways of approaching it. And for me, when I was running um, a Dungeon Crawl Classics campaign for the public on a kind of a regular basis, I just awarded people um, the same XP each session. So people were just kind of leveling up by going on the adventures and doing their thing. I didn't give a shit how many things they killed, how much treasure they got. If you're adventuring and you're doing stuff, you're getting getting more power. And that sort of lethal environment where uh, the dragon will kill you. Um, yeah. sneaking past is experience worthy. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And also when I'm, when I'm at an old school gaming table, some of the sessions where it's mostly RP is some of the most fun I have. And then the session's over and they're like, oh yeah, I guess everybody gets like 30 experience points because <laughs> you didn't really fight anything right. or get any treasure. And it's like, really? Like we had an awesome session right. where we got so much accomplished yeah. and like we were like bringing people together and like really cool stuff was happening. And and then it's almost like the system is punishing you mm-hmm. yeah. for for not having done these other two things. Well, like I just think D&D is, it's a combat game. Like yeah, most of is. the powers are built around combat. Um, yeah. And, you know, you can point out examples, you know, counter examples, but, you know, this is why the Ranger is the most terrible class in 5e. Uh, <laughs> people complain about it because it's not best in combat, but mm-hmm. it's great in exploration. But, yeah. um, but who cares about that? Yeah. There's a lot of other stuff you can do that still involves creative thinking, still even yeah. lets you use your character sheet and use your mm-hmm. powers and abilities to get effect. Right. 
I mean, as, that. as far back as, I mean, we could talk about the ins and outs of experience systems, obviously, and what the real implications are. And people have very rabbinical mm-hmm. arguments about on the internet. But <laughs> I do recall that as far back as second edition, they did have um, an alternate experience system, which they had specific bonuses relating to your character class. So that if you were a fighter, obviously you got some for defeating or protecting members of your party in combat wizards for successfully, you know, either uh, researching a spell or casting a spell at the right moment and thief, you know, sneaking and stealing and all those things like that. So there are, I think you can definitely sort of tailor it to sort of like a general thing of experience. Okay. You survive this encounter, you get a certain amount of experience, whether you survive it through trickery or evasion mm-hmm. or combat. And then yeah. for specifically sort of uh, things that are true to your character concept, you get, you know, experience for that, uh, wherever that may be. Um, but then, of course, that becomes a little bit more of a negotiation. And then people are looking at certain times for sort of very hard and fast uh, rules. Like, hey, it's not fair. I should have gotten experience for this. And that guy's got experience for that. So it's, it's a, a tricky, yeah. you know, line to sort of uh, walk if you want to do that. And, and within the book, within Neverwhere, there is... There, there really was not a lot of combat at all. Um, no. I mean, what, one or two things of uh, moments of combat, maybe? We had some torture. Yeah, yeah, yeah some torture. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do the bad guys get XP for that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and that's kind of true to mythical, I mean, not necessarily like heroic, uh, epic, uh, like, you know, um, Homer, but it's kind of true to sort of mythical st- uh, fairy tale thing. There is a it's not that they're fighting constantly. It's that you come to this moment where you, a moment of decision where you have to fight the dragon or the dragon, not mm-hmm. 10 dragons, that dragon, this dragon, the other dragon, right? So this moment is the boar. It's like the, the big fight, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And so that makes sense. But obviously it, it privileges a different kind of storytelling and the one that is probably a little bit more uh, story-oriented, narrative-oriented than, uh, you know, your traditional dungeon, dungeon delve. And we are running out of time. Uh, Jim, do you have any kind of last thought about Neverwhere or something about it you really wanted to quickly chat about that we didn't get a chance to? You know, I, I think we kind of covered it and more. Um, it, it was a fun little world to hop into. And uh, um, I could I could see me pulling some ideas from it. Um, probably not the book that I recommend everyone, uh, you know, if I came back to this podcast. But, you know, it was, it was pretty fun. Yeah. I would really like to quickly mention two things super quickly. One is um, how Doors families, their, 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 their entire home is made up of rooms that are each in a completely different location, oh, yeah. but only their family is able to access right. like room to room right. through kind of their door right. magic, which I thought right. was a really brilliant idea. And I would love to see. Not just location, potentially time also, potentially time period yeah. also. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Delightful. So yeah. that was number one. And the, the other, the second one was how when Richard is in the labyrinth with Hunter, um, they lose the um, the statue that they need to to get to uh, that they need to use to get to the angel, but then they're able to use the beast's blood to get there. And I thought that was just a great example of like always have more than one way to get to that final thing, mm-hmm. um, so that you're not r- just railroading your 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 players along a very specific path. Give them multiple routes to get there. Mm-hmm. So those are the two things I quickly wanted to say. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. No, I, I, again, I quite enjoy this book. I don't think it's perfect by any means. And I think it's, um, not so compelling that if you, um, had another book on your top pile that you were, you know, dying to read that you, you know, couldn't put that aside for the time being. But I think as a source of ideas, um, 
it, it's really, really rich and, and, and easily yeah. accessible ideas. Some things have, are like very high concept and very specific. And even though this is very specific to a mythical London, um, it, it's still the imagery is powerful enough that you could apply it in, in almost any game, whether it's a modern fantasy game, uh, you know, a, a traditional D&D game. Um, so I, I'm very glad I read this book, but I, I think it is also, um, it, it sort of shows its seems a little bit, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Jim, what are, what are things that you're, is there anything that you're working on that you want people to know about at the moment? Uh, I have my, my Patreon where I put out, I try to I publish a zine every single month and, uh, that's, that's a lot of zines. And so my, uh, in October, it's my first foray into uh, helping another uh, creator publish their zines, and it'll go out to my uh, my Patreon patrons, but then also go out to a bunch of web stores. Um, and so uh, the game, and that's going to be coming out in October, uh, is by Six Legs Games, and it's called Egophagus. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's this kind of crazy. Uh, it's not tied to any system, but uh, pretty much there's some sort of strange uh, fungal uh, cavern that the players can can uh, encounter, and it can potentially change their characters very drastically. So this is something that's that is available now uh, on drive through, but uh, you'll be able to get it in print through my. Uh, Patreon starting uh, next month, and then it'll be in my web store and other web stores as well. So right. uh, check it out. All right. So you're Very at cool. Brooklet Games, B R O O K L E T Games dot com, and all your uh, looks like your social media and your Patreon are linked right from the front page there, right? That's correct. Yep. Okay. And so Patreon dot com slash Brooklet Games. There you go. So take a look uh, and uh, listen. Uh, Jim's work is gorgeous. So everybody, take a look at the very least. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. And uh, for us, if you want to get in touch with us, please uh, drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore N. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your uh, podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes. So our patrons are able to join us for a patron-exclusive book club before we meet up and record with our guests. And this week, we were joined by Robert Coleman, Rick Byrne, Hyperlexic, Dan Alexander, and Adam Stiers. That was a really fun conversation. I would also like to give a shout out to some of our new patrons. Thank you to Alexander Case, Stephen Wendell, Ron Lipke, Jason Blassow, and James Knight. We really appreciate your support. I'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons as well. By Grinstow, Matt Richards, Robert Poyton, William Souter, Jesse Byrer, Hyperlexic, Joseph Fletcher A. Vradenberg, Richard Ruane, and Chris Holmes. Thank you all so much for your support. Our patrons are also able to choose the books that we're covering. And at the time that this episode was recorded, we now have the results for episodes 135 and 136. 135 is going to be Carolyn Stevemer's A College of Magics. And 136 is going to be Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, as of the time of this recording, episode 137 is still being voted on. But hoy, what are our options for episode 138, which will be the poll will be available when this episode drops? Okay. The theme for our picks is going to be Within a Forest Dark. And our choices this time are Robert Holdstock's Mythago Wood. George McDonald's Fantasties, 
Naomi Novik's Uprooted, and Thomas Burnett Swan's The Weirwoods. So there you go, Within a Forest Dark. Very cool. Some fun options. Yeah, that sounds great. There you go. All right, well, Jim, it's been such a pleasure and honor to have you on. I hope we get a chance to talk again soon in some uh, similar context or a different context. And, yeah, um, I really appreciate you having me. And we're really going to keep an eye out for your work. And um, yeah, wow, it's seen every month. I think that's a bargain <laughs> if you go on Patreon for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>